Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today's topic is digital currency as well as the history of money. So understanding the history of money is valuable, no pun intended, because it supplies us with valuable lessons for today. So we know each country has its own economic history, and it would be in some ways nice to do an overview of money in the UK, the USA, Canada. But for the sake of time, I think we got to start with what we know about Canadian currency. So maybe you could start there for us, Aaron. Sure. Well, as you uh, mentioned at the beginning of your introduction there, we want to think Christianly about all of life. So that means we want to think Christianly about finances. And it is important for us to look at history because history often teaches us very valuable lessons about how we should and shouldn't respond to the current events that we find ourselves in. So I was doing a little bit of reading on the history of money in Canada. And if you're an American listener, a UK listener, you're in Holland or whatnot, you're like, okay, I'm tuning out. Don't tune out because I think some of the the lessons we can learn from the Canadian scene are transferable to other countries. So I'm, I'm sharing this more as for the purpose of illustrating certain things we should think about or be concerned with when it comes to economic policy and money supply and money as a whole. So Canada, of course, the, the vast majority of individuals that colonized, the Europeans that colonized Canada prior to it officially becoming Canada were, were French. So we had French Canadians across the Canadas, Upper Canada and Lower Canada, which we now call Quebec and Ontario. I mean, the lines have been redrawn a little bit, but just generally speaking, we have Upper Canada and Lower Canada. And the French, the French were here. People were obviously carrying out commerce and raising their families. And we also had soldiers on the ground that were representing the interests of the French crown. And in order to pay people, they would ship across the ocean boatloads of coins because back in the 1600s, coins were minted and measured and weighed and they would have actual value. So if you had a gold coin, the weight of that gold coin would determine what was stamped on it. I mean, technically it took place the other way around. So if you wanted a, um, and I can't recall what the, the French denominations of money were at the time, but I'll just borrow from our modern language. If you wanted a $10, a $10 coin, you'd have to have exactly $10, $10 of value of gold in that coin. So the, the coin itself was innately valuable. It held its own value. But you can imagine there was, costs to shipping money across the Atlantic Ocean. So by the time the money would land in the Canadas, they they had to increase its value. So initially it went up, I believe, by one-eighth, and then it, I think at one point by even up to a third because there was a cost attached to getting the coinage from France to the Canadas. And then, of course, there were supply issues because you'd have ships that might be sunk on the way or pirated on the way, or you had to ship the money overland to pay for, let's say, soldiers. 
And there was times when the soldiers, who as essentially employees of the, the French crown, wouldn't get paid for months and months and months. So what some of the early French Canadian governors did is they would take paper, and the most convenient forms of paper at the time were cardstock, the, the little cards you would print playing cards on, you know, your, your jacks and kings and aces. You would take those and you would essentially, in handwriting, write a value on that card. So let's say this, this entitles the bearer to $10, and they'd sign it off on behalf of the governor. So people could then use that as a form of legal tender to go buy and sell and trade and engage in commerce without actually having gold or silver coins in their possession. But the idea was is that these paper cards, these paper, this paper money could be redeemed for something of actual value, gold, silver coins. Initially, the French government didn't like the fact that the Canadian governors had made that decision. But then they sort of realized, look, we, we could actually allow these this paper card money to, to circulate among the, the Canadians and never really pay it. So if you think about it, just to be real simple, so let's just say for the sake of conversation, there was a billion coins in the possession of the French crown, and they owed 10 million coins to the French soldiers. Well, they're supposed, if there was 10 million cards floating around, there wasn't, but I'm just using this for the sake of illustration, 10 million cards floating around, technically 10 million of those billions of coins that the French had in their possession, the French crown had in their possession, were owed to the soldiers. And when they submitted their card to a magistrate, they were supposed to be given a coin in exchange for the card that commensurately represented the value on the card. But the French decided, well, it would be better for us to keep our money in France because we don't have to worry about it being lost at sea, we don't have to worry about the shipping costs of it. We can spend more money at home. So over time, they allowed these cards to circulate. Well, the problem with that is that these cards, in addition to the coins, led to the inability of the common man to have the same kind of buying power to buy commodities. You're essentially contributing to inflation. So inflation is essentially when your money is devalued and is worth less and less and less and less because there's more representative money or fiat money out in the marketplace. And you, you do have limited buying power, so you're inflating the value of your money. And then, that, of course, what that does is that triggers a recession so that the, the average person doesn't have enough money to invest in the business world, and then the merchants start to suffer. So at one point, and there was a, there's a whole history to it from the mid-1600s onward. At one point, the crown, when the, when the public cried out, said, okay, we'll, we'll, pay, we'll, pay you, we'll pay you out for the paper card money you have, but we're only paying you 50, 50 cents, or like 50 cents on a dollar, for example. So now people are enraged. So I, I went out and I earned $10, and I'm only getting five for it. So now my buying power has dropped in half. Not only does my buying power drop in half, but that's five less dollars to buy corn, bread, commodities at the grocer or the merchant, so then they suffer. So you see the vicious cycle there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a lesson in, 
and the dangers of inflating the value of a nation's money and the, the consequent uh, implications of that in terms of recession. So then, of course, over time, depending on who was in power at different points in time, through public pressure, France would limit its paper supply. There was a period of time when they decided we're only going to issue paper money that is equal to the actual coinage we have on hand. That increased public trust. It's like, okay, if I have a card that says it's worth so much money, I've been guaranteed the French crown has that. I can cash it in at any time mm -hmm. for actual coinage. So that kind of helped to stabilize the market. And what that did is that allowed governments not to overspend. So again, if the government had 10 billion coins in its possession and so many millions or billions were owed to its citizens because they held paper paper notes that said you owe me money, they're essentially IOUs. That's what paper money historically was. It was essentially an IOU then they couldn't go spend money on new palaces or new navies and that sort of thing. So that would restrain state spending, but at other points in history, the government would cast off restraint and they would essentially spend money beyond what they actually technically owned, and that's what drives nations into debt. And then after you know, this had gone on for a period of time, the British conquered the French, and the French money was basically tossed out, and then there was a treaty, an agreement for the, for the British to ensure that French money was valued. So there was some bit of a resuscitation of the, the card money at the time. And to just make a long story short, as Canada developed, banks rose up, banks were given charters, and then for, it sounds strange to the modern listener, but for probably over 100, 150 years, there was all kinds of different currency floating around. So banks would then each individually issue their own paper currency. So bank A would say, okay, we're going to print X number of bills in the form of paper money, and we're backing that with our reserve, and bank B would do the same, and bank D, and then Spanish money came into the market, and English money, and American coinage. So you could literally be a Canadian shopping at a store, drop down a particular banknote that's worth you know, X number of shillings or pence, and you could be reimbursed in multiple currencies. So it became incredibly confusing to keep track of you know, what's a shilling worth, a pence, a pound, an American dollar, uh, a franc, on and on and on. And uh, th that was essentially the case for most Canadians up to about the uh, 1950s or 1850s or so. But the point I wanted to make there is those, those early centuries of what we call Canada now really illustrates the power of money controlled by the state to either destroy or bless an economy. And so it is something we need to think about. You know, we want our money to actually be worth something. We want to make sure people if they're gonna work an honest day's pay, receive money that actually gives them buying power instead of you know, working really hard, getting paid for it, and realizing that your money just doesn't have the buying power that you thought it did. And then of course that drives up prices, mm -hmm. that drives 
companies or countries into recession. So all those lessons of history, I'm just giving a very brief overview. You can study it on your own. Help us to understand the importance of making sure that there is a, a stable money supply and that people are properly being paid commensurate to their work and their efforts. That's good. Yeah, that uh, that is a helpful overview. Now, I think you mentioned to me uh, before the show, something took place from 1854 to 1914. That's pretty important in the history of money in Canada. And so what was that? So private citizens became increasingly frustrated with private banks printing all the legal tender, the the bank notes, I should say. And uh, some of those banks, of course, would uh, on occasion go bankrupt. So now you had paper money printed from a particular bank. It goes bankrupt. It goes bankrupt. And so you're essentially a creditor to that bank and your bill is worth nothing anymore because it's 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 like a private agreement. It's like if I, I decide I'm going to buy your lawnmower for $500 and instead of giving you $500, I give you essentially an IOU. I, I write out my own $500 Aaron Rock bill and I give it to you and I say, Chris, I'm giving you Aaron money <laughs> for this purchase the idea is, is that at any point in time in the past, you now have buying power to buy $500 from me or to come knocking on my door and say, okay, you owe me $500 in sterling silver or copper or mm-hmm. gold or whatever it is, and I I disappear. And now you have, you've been ripped off. You've sold me something for $500. You have an Aaron Rock bank note for 500, but you have no buying power with that. Yeah. So this would happen now and again and so Canadians were interested in uh, some sort of standardization. So Canada uh, started to move increasingly toward a central banking system. It didn't start in the 1850s, of course. But what it started with was what was called a gold standard. So the idea was is that through various laws, there was a, a requirement placed upon banks and uh, financial institutions, I guess they would exclusively have been banks, to make sure that if they're issuing a bank note, that that bank note is equal to that amount of gold. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the idea of the gold standard. So if there's a million dollars in circulation by 10 banks, those 10 banks have a million dollars in gold in their vaults. If there's a billion dollars of money in circulation, there's a billion dollars in gold. So you can't you can't issue more banknotes than you actually have gold for. Or I think in England at the time, I, c- I could be wrong on this, their standard was silver. But regardless, you had to have a precious metal that backed the value of the banknotes that you had out in circulation. Now, what would happen then is that everything was really stable. So your banknotes, which you carried around and used for daily commerce, were backed by actual hard assets. So this this takes place through the second half of the 1800s, right up to World War One. So from 1854 to, to 1914, but in World War One they put the the gold standard on hold. It was actually deleted for 12 years, and there was reasons for that: shipping insecurities because countries would trade gold back and forth, and now some of them are on. Germany side, some of them were on England side. So there was trust issues. There was concerns about insecurities from 
boats being sunk in the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean en route with gold bars on them. People also had a certain patriotism. They just didn't they didn't like the idea of their gold or silver being sent to other nations that may have been their enemies. But one of the greatest problems was mass withdrawals. So people basically, when World War I broke out, flocked to the banks and started saying, okay, I want to exchange my paper money for gold. And so all of a sudden the banks are thinking, okay, we're going to go insolvent, we're going to go bankrupt because we're pushing all this gold out of our vaults into the into the public. People are cashing in on all their bank notes and it became a real problem. So what the government did to try to rectify that fundamentally is they decided to make the money itself legal tender. So they essentially assigned value to the banknotes. So instead of thinking of the banknotes as representative of actual value, they would declare that the, the banknotes themselves were innately valuable. So during the Great Depression, fast forwarding from there onward, we have the Great Depression in the uh, late 20s and 30s. And this was largely a result of wild economic speculation that led to a massive drop crashing of the stock market. So people thought everything's great, everything's growing, they start speculating, people are overbuying and the stock market crashes. So then the Bank of Canada is officially created initially from 1830 to eight, uh, 1930 to 1939. And initially it's a private corporation, but it eventually becomes a, um, a, a crown corporation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Now, the, the reason why um, this was considered a good thing initially is because the people that distrusted individual banks' ability to basically honor their, their bank notes now had sort of a, a protection from a broader government-linked entity. The banks, on the other hand, the private banks, on the other hand, didn't, because the economy was so unstable, they, they stopped giving out loans to a lot of people. They wouldn't lend money. And people need to have money lent in order to buy property and whatnot. So on one hand, the, the, the citizens' trust in the banking system drops out. And on the other hand, the bank's trust in the citizenry drops out. So this is why the central bank notion became a good idea at the time. And fast forwarding, now we still have a central bank, the Canadian bank, and it's not a government agency, but it is a crown corporation. So in Canada, our head of state is now King Charles the third, third, right? I think it's the third. He's so new, we forget the yeah. number, yeah. but I think it's King Charles the third. And his office essentially owns crown, what we call crown land or government land and crown corporations in Canada. So the central bank is a crown corporation and it has X number of shares that makes up its corporation, just like any corporation would be. But those shares are all owned by whoever happens to be the federal minister of finance at a particular given time. And the, the role of the Bank of Canada is to set interest rates in order to deal with inflation. So basically, they have a gas pedal and they have a brake. And if they want to hit the gas and accelerate the economy, they drop interest rates to increase spending. But if they're concerned about 
interest rates being too low and inflation going up and prices going up, they hit the break, which is to increase interest rates, to slow down the economy, to discourage spending, and to allow things to stabilize. That's that's fundamentally their role. They also determine monetary policies and through a, a private organization that they have had a contract with for almost 100 years, they're also responsible for the, the money supply. Mm-hmm. So to actually print, uh, and now we have polymer money, to print polymer money and to distribute that out into the uh, financial system. Now, I'll just make a quick note uh, for our American listeners. The US also has a central banking system, which I'm slightly less familiar with. And by the way, I'm not an expert in any of this. I just have a very lay level knowledge of it. But in the US, their central bank is called the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve has seven board members on it, which are appointed by the presidents. And then across, scattered across the US, there's 12 major Federal Reserve banks. And so you got 12 presidents of 12 banks. You have seven board members for the Federal Reserve and a, a certain number of Federal Reserve Bank uh, presidents sit together with the board of the Federal Reserve, and they basically determine the banking policies for the United States. Each of those federal banks, those 12 federal banks, are also responsible to oversee the, the smaller banks in any given state or region. Now, one of the problems there is you have these federal banks, even though there's only 12 of them, are privately owned, they're private corporations. So an individual who who is the president of a privately owned corporation now has influence over federal monetary policies. And there's been situations where there's been corruption that has arisen south of the border whereby you know, it's discovered that a particular Federal Reserve Bank president is weighing in on policies that benefits his own own financial policy his own financial policy and that sort of thing so they have a kind of a different hybrid system and you have a combination of private citizens with their own private interests representing their own private corporations and then individuals appointed by the president and whatever ideologies he happens to hold at the time overseeing uh, the financial monetary policies of the uh, Federal Reserve of the money supply in the US. Some people think this is a great system because it's sort of a public-private partnership. Uh, Others are highly suspicious of it. Even though it is audited, they're highly suspicious of it because you do have human nature involved where Mm. an individual with private interests is now then affecting and influencing the value of money, inflation, interest rates, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's kind of how it works south of the border, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. So obviously we find out on on one level it's incredibly complex, and on another level it's it's simple yeah. math, right? Mm-hmm. And so we know, okay, money can actually have value and and not have value in the same sense. So well, I think, so anyways, is that true, would you say? And based on that, what are the implications then for economics? Well, it is true. So there's essentially three kinds of money, if you will. So put aside whether you call them dollars, pesos, pounds, marks, rubles, on and on and on. Put put the language aside and just think of it this way. There's commodity money is money that's innately valuable. So if I have 
a gold coin that's worth, let's say, $100. I, I'm holding in my hand $100 worth of gold. So that's commodity money. Where in my possession, in my physical possession, I have something that's of innate value. So I can store it in a safe. I can bury it in the ground. I can engage in commerce. I can buy and sell. And it's always in my possession. So mm -hmm. the, the, the autonomy of the holder is emphasized. There's a co collective agreement that people are going to accept, exchange, and negotiate using common denominators of money, but I hold something of innate value. This is why a lot of people in their financial portfolios advocate for holding in your possession or in a safety deposit box or storing in a bank hard assets, gold, silver. That's called commodity money. The value is directly held by the owner. This is really important. Now, the downsides, it, downside is it can wear out. So if you have a gold coin and you're passing it from one person to the next to the next to the next to the next, and everyone's handling it, literally over the years, it can wear out mm. and its weight can drop. So it's no longer worth what it once was. And this is why a lot of um, governments believed that it was better to make representative money. But real money, commodity money, it can wear out, you can lose it, and then you, can, you can't get it back. If you lose it as a citizen, the state has no way to replace that. If it's stolen, it's gone. It's also cumbersome to carry about. So if you're buying a house for $500,000 and you show up with 500,000 gold nuggets, you know, it's just a weird, it's a bit of a cumbersome way to do business. So then we have representative money. So this is where we have bills or banknotes that are backed by a bank or the Federal Reserve. And that's what we kind of saw with when the gold standard was in place. So we, there was a guarantee between the, the holder of the hard assets and the holder of the, the bank note that if I have in my possession $100,000 in bank notes, my $100,000 of gold is being held in security by that bank. And at any point in time, I can walk up to the bank with my hundred thousand dollars in banknotes, and say, "Give me the gold," and they give me a bag of gold or blocks of gold or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. yep. So, the upside of that is that if 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 you lose the bill, hypothetically, you can just reprint it to represent money. The bill wears out, the coin doesn't wear out, so you can keep replacing it. It's also easier to carry about. the The third kind of money is what's called fiat money. And fiat money is is essentially made up money. It's when you print money and you just declare this money is of value. We just collectively decide as a civilization that this money is of value. It you you print it, you stamp a number on it, and this is a ten dollar bill, or this is a fifty dollar bill, or this is a hundred dollar bill. But it has no intrinsic worth. And the problem with it is that it's subject to manipulation. So the central bank can say we're going to make it worth more. We're going to increase its buying power or we're going to decrease its buying power. So that's fiat money. So yes, money can have value or over time it can have no value. And there have been times in history where you know Confederate money, for example, in the US became worthless because of the Civil War. It, wasn't wor it was printed. Someone worked to attain that amount of quote unquote money but it's not worth anything anymore. So that's where a lot of people are very concerned. 
that in countries like Canada, we now have fiat money instead of representative money or commodity-based money. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was driving over the border several years back uh, to Michigan for school, and I tried to pay with some Canadian dollars at I forget where it was. They laughed and they said, we don't want your Monopoly money. Oh, really? Because <laughs> it was colored. Because <laughs> Canadian money's got all the different colors, right? And I laughed at it. But I thought, yeah, this money to them, it, well, it is of value. I'm so sure you can exchange it somewhere. Sure. But it is interesting when you think, step back and think of it. You're like, it's just a piece of paper, yes. right? And, and this is why when even when Canadians travel to foreign countries, we often go and exchange our Canadian money for, for example, American money, which is sort of the world standard right now, because American money, it's it's about trust. It's essentially, yep. it boils down to trust, which is kind of subjective, but people trust the economic viability of the United States dollar more than they trust the Mexican peso or the Canadian dollar. So you you exchange it because it's it's more globally accepted. But again, it's sort of a trust issue because if I'm over in any foreign country, even dealing with you, and I'm just we're just handing paper and plastic back and forth, paper mm-hmm. bills, polymer bills. We just get, we don't even think about it. We just assume, oh, there's a five dollar bill; it's worth five dollars. No, not really. It's either fiat money. Someone just decided it's worth five bucks, or it has. Five dollars in gold or silver or copper or some precious commodity somewhere backing up its value. Mm-hmm. But the problem with fiat money is it becomes, as I mentioned earlier, increasingly manipulated not only by central banks but also by global globalist ideologies where countries are always affected in the decisions, the economic decisions they make by the ideals of the global community. So there, there's a lot of concern among more conservative-minded Christians that you know, fiat money has replaced representative money in commodities, and it's it's being it's losing its buying power, and it's driving a lot of countries like our own towards recession. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with the one type of money we haven't talked about yet, but I know a lot of people are interested in, is digital cur- digital currency. We could say. Um, so maybe you want to explain that. I think most of our listeners would be aware of it, but what is it and is it problematic? Well, so digital currency can be hypothetically representative money or fiat money. In Canada, it's fiat money because all of our money is essentially fiat money. Mm-hmm. But what, what it is, it's basically t- going to the next level now where you're taking gold, which has which is represented in the marketplace by paper polymer bills and then you transfer it into digital currency so that's it's gone from something you hold that's of innate value to a paper representation of it to digital uh, currency that digital currency could hypothetically in a certain context be reflective of something of actual value so if you hold a hundred digital dollars somebody out there who's guaranteeing that might have a hundred dollars in gold or it can just be a digitalized form of fiat money where it's not there's no nothing that's actually backing it. So digital currency can exist in in different forms. So it it already it's already there. So when you go to your your bank and your paycheck is deposited and there's numbers in your bank account, you know, $1,000 and 50 cents or whatever it is, you look at your your paycheck 
you 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 don't see the gold. You never hold that in money. It's just numbers in a bank account that you then can you can transfer some of those numbers mm-hmm. to pay your electricity bill. You can transfer some of them to pay your uh, gasoline. You can transfer some of them to pay food. But we're we're already in a digital age where most of the money, probably upwards of ninety five percent of the money that the average Canadian or American or Englishman has in their possession is is digital. It's just being it's it's numbers from one one bank to the next and so forth and so on. But the the problem with this, well, there's a, there's a few problems with it. Um, it's it's essentially out of your physical possession, so you never actually hold it in your possession. It's not literally in your house. It's not in your safe. It's not in your pocket. It's not in your wallet. It's it's out there in cyber world. It's it's numbers in a immaterial world, in a digital world. So so that when when you don't own something, when you don't have it in your possession, you have much less control. And one could argue you don't have true ownership over it because you then are subservient to the person that owns the platform or the digital account mm-hmm. or who agrees to actually allow the numbers in your account to go and become numbers in my account or the numbers in one bank, the bank account of an employer to go into the bank account of an employee. So you don't possess it anymore. It's not in your possession. And so increasingly what you're doing for the sake of convenience is your money is outside of your autonomous control Mm -hmm. and it's in the control of someone else. People are also concerned because as we move increasingly to a cashless society and everything's digital, it's all trackable. So the the state or those that are in power literally know your your every expenditure. And if if you're spending money on something that represents an ideology that isn't popular, well, then you can be subject to scrutiny that you otherwise wouldn't be subject to if you're paying cash or using commodity money. So for example, we saw this in the trucker's convoy, right? So people would take digital money and they would transfer it from their bank account through GoFundMe and the desire was to get it into the pockets of, let's say, a trucker in order to pay for their diesel. Mm -hmm. But you don't actually see that money. GoFundMe doesn't see the money, but it's in a digital world. And so at any point in time, the state can just step in and say, "Eh, we're freezing it. So we're putting a hold on it. Now, if you're walking from your city to Ottawa with a bag of gold or driving and you pass it on, someone could still apprehend you or, or take it from you, but there's less likelihood of that. There's less control. But the problem with digital money is it's trackable. So they were they were then taking people who donated to it and publishing their their addresses online mm-hmm. to publicly humiliate and embarrass them. Yep. It's controllable. It's freezable, and it's manipulatable. And it's I know this isn't a word takeable. <laughs> it's stealable. Yeah. So this is why people are concerned about digital money. Now, there is a difference between private digital money and um, digital money that's kind of owned or controlled by the state. So private, a private form of digital money is cryptocurrency. So cryptocurrency is fiat money in a certain sense, although hardcore cryptocurrency people don't like that language, but it, it is fiat money because it's not actually backed by 
gold or silver, but it's sort of like a peer-to-peer -peer agreement that it's worth a certain amount. It's outside of the control of the central banks or the Federal Reserve. And so Chris agrees that with me and with the collective whole that cryptocurrency is worth $50,000 or something per Bitcoin. And then we can buy and sell and trade outside of the system, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But it is still digital. Like cryptocurrency isn't a hard asset. It's now the, the, where some would say it's oh, it's not fiat. Is they would say yeah, but if technically gold is, you're just assigning a value to gold as well. So right. I, I get that. Yeah, I get that. That ultimately you're assigning a value to gold. But what you got to keep in mind is gold has been valuable for thousands and thousands of years. Right. So it it does have more of a quote. It doesn't have an absolutely innate value. Yeah. But it does have an, an innate value for all intents and purposes that far exceeds an agreement by modernists that a certain digital number called a Bitcoin is of value. Hmm. So there's sort of a couple ways to, to view that. One of the challenges people are finding with cryptocurrency because it's relatively new is just w the wild fluctuation mm -hmm. of it. So back in the if you go back 12 months, a Bitcoin might have been worth close to $70,000 and now it's worth like $24,000 or mm -hmm. something like that. So your your buying power for the Bitcoin just wildly fluctuates. If you had the Canadian dollar drop and drop from have the buying power of one American dollar down to the the value of 30 cents, you'd be done. Mm -hmm. So to there's just a lot less stability. So there's kind of a plus and minus. It's outside the system. It still fits the digital mindset. It's still easy to transfer. It still has a certain innate value because the community decides its value, but that value is wildly fluctuates. Gold gold flu has fluctuated over the years as well. But if you if you hold gold in your possession long term, it's it's or even silver, these sorts of things, it's pretty much a sure win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Um, and it's good that you bring up the point of the assigned value. So it's more about the longevity of how long it's been valued by society. It's also interesting things. I know a lot of people have talked about silver and um, silver is just used in so many things, right? So whereas bit Bitcoins aren't used for anything, to my knowledge, except as a placeholder for value. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a good point. So because silver or gold, which are the two most historically valuable metals, there is a certain innate value to them as material objects, which can be used, for example, in, in dentistry. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people get gold teeth or silver in various technologies or increasingly uh, copper because of the rise of EVs and that sort of thing. So these are, these are metals that can be used in technological advancement or in, tech, in, in mm -hmm. certain technologies. By the way, the fundamentally, the, the biggest problem with, with digital currency is it's a statist's dream. If you're a statist and you believe that the state is omnipotent and you want to control the citizens and you, you're one of the experts that thinks you know best on everything, which is increasingly the rhetoric we're hearing from the all-powerful state, across the Western world, by the way, this isn't limited to Canada. Mm -hmm. you, you see this in the United States, you see this in the United Kingdom, you see this in Western Europe. It's, it's a statist dream because now, whether you have a central bank that's a crown corporation 
or whether you have a Federal Reserve that functionally is sort of a hybrid between presidential appointed board, a, a presidentially appointed board and the presidents of Federal Reserve banks, you still have control, whoever the higher ups are, you still have a high level of like very precise. In fact, I would go as far as to say absolute control over your citizens. So the idea of microeconomies becomes very, very difficult. The idea of a barter system becomes very, very difficult if it, if it involves commodity-based money. It's very challenging. And of course, the reason why most people have are becoming increasingly comfortable with 100% use of digital money is because it's convenient. Mm -hmm. And they have an overly confident trust in the the state's expertise. They've been told since the time they're children, you're dumb and the economists of the state are the experts. They're the experts. So we have a pillarization in society where we have all these people that are experts in limited areas of life. The average man doesn't know anything. You have to have certifications and certificates and in, in everything to even speak to the issues, it seems, in our society. So you have a state that takes the experts, appoints them to central banks, makes them the governors, whatever. Some of them have a high level of economic prowess and some don't. And some are ideologically driven and some aren't. So there's various agendas and some have connections with private for-profit corporations and some don't. So you have a whole hodgepodge of people involved and they take the control or authority over one's assets out of the hand of the common man or woman and they put it in the, in the control of the state. So literally they can, they can uh, turn your money supply on and off like a light switch. Mm -hmm. And this is what people are very concerned about. And again, we saw it in Ottawa when the government said, we don't like what you're saying. We don't like what you're doing. We're declaring it illegal before it even goes to court. And we're just going to turn off your banks. Mm -hmm. This is a, this, this rattles a lot of cages. And by the way, even if you're anti-convoy and pro-liberalism and a radical lefty, it should concern you too, because- what if a different kind of government at variance with your ideology gets in place and treats you the same mm -hmm. way, just turns your money supply off because they don't like what you're saying or how you're uh, living out your freedom. So this, this is a concern for most people. And uh, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to fix because it's prevalent and it's, it's, part of, it's part of the Western, Western world right now. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to, to turn back the clock. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where we want to take this now we want some practical application for our listeners. So what would you, what would you tell the average listener? They're not an economist. They're probably not, you know, starting their own currency, though I've thought about it now. Yeah. <laughs> but the Chris dollar. The Chris dollar in my house. <laughs> well, so I don't have the answer to fix everything. Okay. So just if you listen to the podcast and the end of this, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm looking for the, the, the final fix, the final solution, maybe final solution is a good terminology, no, but right. the ultimate solution for yeah. the financial woes, I don't have that because there's a whole variety of things at play here, but I, a few things it, are really helpful. Understanding the history of money and how it's been used and abused and how certain social experiments with money have worked out really well and certain ones have been disastrous is important. You can read about the history of money in your own country, 
through a variety of sources. And it'll just help give you an appreciation for past historical trends and what worked and what didn't work and some of the lessons learned out of that so you can speak intelligently to some of the things you see in the modern world because history tends to repeat itself. It's a different package. It's a different wrapping paper. There's a different bow on top. But it, history repeats itself. So what we're experiencing today, it looks different and it seems scary, but it's not unlike things that have happened in history in, in history uh, past, which I guess is what history is. It's, mm -hmm. it's in the past. So a lot of times we focus on stewardship. We tend to focus exclusively upon current events, current issues, how to budget, how to handle your money. But we don't spend a lot of time thinking about some of the lessons from history in terms of how money has been used. So I think there's some value in maybe doing a better job and understanding the history of money. Secondly, I would just say, if you're gonna speak to money and you're gonna concern yourself with money, make sure that you are managing your money well. Like make sure that you understand what a budget is and you you track your income and you track your expenses and you're a generous person and you're aligning your financial stewardship with God's word, with God's laws when it comes to money. So that's kind of kind of important. And if you don't know how to do that, talk to someone in your church or go see a Christian financial analyst or financial planner and you know there are people out there that uh, specialize in just helping the average person balance their budget and then there's people out there that are skilled and gifted at helping large christian corporations or family-owned companies and managing their funds so kind of on different levels find the right person i would encourage everyone not to live in fear but be smart so I don't think putting all your eggs in one basket in terms of investments or one solution is wise. Sometimes you hear people, this is the solution to it all, you know, like just buy gold, like mountains of gold in your basement or just forget, just go crypto. That, that's the solution to the world's problems or just barter with your friends. Well, okay, there's there's value in all of those things, but wisdom and prudence would suggest that because there's a lot of question marks out there and un unanswered questions, and we, we don't have a crystal ball to foresee the future, that diversifying your assets is important. I mean, there's, there is evidence, for example, that when we, when we use cash, we tend to be a bit more conservative in how we buy and sell. And also, there's, it's less traceable. It's more private. And there's, there's nothing wrong with being a private person. Like people, the state doesn't need to know every time you purchase something from the automotive store or the, the grocery store, they may be able to see that you've withdrawn money from your, your bank account and you withdraw a thousand bucks and you know you, you go out there and you buy your gas and you go buy your groceries and whatever else. They don't need to know all of that. And it may be inert, like it may be, it may not be of significance whether they do know or do not know that at any point in time, but just in general, I think the state knows too much about us and is too involved in our lives. And frankly, it's it's in the best interest of the citizenry and the state to know less. Mm -hmm. Like we do, the state, the state, the government should always exist for the benef benefit and betterment of the citizenry, and not for its own sake. And I think we would all agree that in our mm -hmm. current context, it's gone way too far. Where a huge percentage of our population is employed by the state. The state controls everything, and the the, the bureaucracy of our times is is absolutely astonishing. The rules and regulations uh, 
that we're subject to, you know, is is really really quite astonishing. Mm-hmm. So being being private, using cash where possible is good. I appreciated a, a local restaurateur that put out a a plea in this regard. She basically said, you know, if someone comes to my restaurant, I'll just summarize in my own words. If someone comes to my restaurant and they buy fifty dollars worth of food and they debit it, I might only get forty seven bucks. And then if I pay for plates and cutlery and food supplies from a supplier using my debit and I buy $47 with, they, they may only get 40, $44 worth. And then it, it goes down the chain. So over time through fees, that $50 becomes essentially worthless. It's just in the hands of the banking industry. Mm-hmm. Now it's difficult to imagine driving to every one of your utility providers and paying in cash for your all your, you know, your electric bill, your natural gas bill, your oil bill every month. But there's, we could probably do some more of that, buying, paying things in cash, not to evade taxes, but to to just be more private about the way that we handle our finances. Not a bad idea. And then I'm just going to throw out this thought. And by the way, I, I, I chatted with a dear brother this week who's a very competent financial advisor just to kind of see if we can get this ball rolling. It, it doesn't solve all the issues, but I'd like to see Christian people start banks or start credit unions. I know that's happened on some level, but I'd like for that to become more commonplace. So this is maybe a little bit off our specific topic, but a lot of the banks aren't ethical in terms of where they spend their profits. You know, they're spending their profits on a lot of these woke agendas, which are very concerning. You know, when you go into a bank and you're you know, you open the door and you're exposed to a rainbow flag and you walk in and you're exposed to some supposedly racial initiative or some feminist agenda or, or you know, then the bank managers are promoting certain agendas through f- flags or things in their name tag or posters in the wall. It's a little sickening. I mean, you, one would think that a, a bank should be about the most morally inert institution in society. It just should be this almost stale, drab place where you go put money in, you take money out, right? But the agendas, the woke agendas are woven all into the banking institutions. And so if there is a a Christian uh, credit union Mm -hmm. or Christian-based credit union nearby you, why not bank there? You may not get all the bells and whistles because there's fewer people that are part of it. Um, But I would like to see Christians get back involved and build out those institutions more. So at least if we are putting our money in banks or dealing with digital currencies, that there is some appreciation that those institutions are investing profits, or they may be non-profitable, but investing their profits or supporting initiatives aligned with God's word. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that what it comes down to often is convenience versus being burdened by the state, like, or being burdened by the company, right? So I use my my uh, credit card because it's convenient, but then your borrower, slave is borrower to the lender. Plus they you have get points. And you get points <laughs> and whatever else, right? Even though but, most people, just is again, a little off topic, but most people, these credit card companies know that by giving you points, not only do they get your, your business, but most people don't pay their balances off. Mm-hmm. And so they, there's some people that are disciplined. So I have a credit card that I actually make quite a bit of money off every year because I pay it off every month and it offers some good dividends. But these credit cards 
exist because they know that there's less of an urgency in people's mind to pay off a credit card. And even even the fact that money is digital, it's just easier to spend. It's mm -hmm. not like I got to take something out of my pocket and actually go through that painful process of handing it off to you. I just hit a button and it's right. just numbers from one thing to the next. So we're almost, I, I almost think this would be my guess. I haven't researched this, but my guess is that the more digital money becomes, the more easy it will be for people to spend it. Mm -hmm. And the less of that check and balance is there where you actually have to pass off something that you're holding in your possession and maybe you've held in your possession for a while to someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But it yeah. is, you're right, it is a convenience issue, as is so much of life, right? I mean, people, we're, we're lazy. Even the most hardworking among us has a lazy gene in us. And people are lazy. We want things, we want fast food, which isn't very fast. We want quick and easy transactions. We want everything delivered to our doorstep. We want short church services. We don't want Christmas on Sunday. <laughs> you were had, going there. I had to throw that you were going there. We don't want Christmas <laughs> on Sunday because it's not convenient. Yeah. So we we rearrange our worship to make it as convenient as possible. Now I'm not I'm not suggesting that we should be sitting on wooden benches in on ice blocks and uh, suffering during our church services, or there isn't room to consider the best time of day to meet or whatnot, but. That we are increasingly, we're such a comfort-driven culture, and comfort is, the, the, the thirst and desire for comfort and ease is the status dream. They mm -hmm. can manipulate, they can offer you a reward for your servitude, yep. and people just gladly give up liberties and freedoms for the sake of ease, and it's we just don't we don't think around that we don't think about what the implications of that are for for five years from now or for the um, you know the generation that comes after us. So there there is some warning flags to be had. Again, don't, don't live in fear, but Christians need to be thoughtful and careful and conscientious about how they steward their man money and even how they conceive of money mm -hmm. uh, in order to not contribute to something that is that is ultimately dehumanizing and destructive to social order. It's good. It's really good. Well, I appreciate that, Aaron. Thanks for taking us on that educational journey. And I think also just our listeners are probably saying the same thing in terms of just helping us to think around the corner, what's coming up and to, uh, to get the ball rolling on these things. So appreciate that. We want to let you know, our listeners, that this podcast can be heard on the Fight, Laugh, Feast app, as well as Aaron's personal blog, PursuitOfGlory.org, or your favorite podcast apps like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And we hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. 